So uh, I want to ask you guys to go ahead and open your Bibles up to the book of Galatians. Uh, they're on, it's on page 700 in the E3 Bibles. If you brought your own, I trust you can find it, but it's going to be on the screens and uh, on, uh, on the fridge fold as well. So we're just going to jump right into the text here, and then we're going to talk about things as they kind of come up. So uh, the book starts this way, chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead. All the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Well, that's the text. Uh, and as, as Dan said, we're going to be spending pretty much the remainder of the summer in this book, Galatians. And what we thought we would do tonight is sort of set the table as best we could and kind of uh, create a framework through which maybe we can understand Galatians together as we we journey through it. So I'm going to spend some time on the basics of what this book uh, is written sort of for and about, and then as we go on week to week to week, we'll unpack the specifics of the book so I'm going to start with, with basic questions, and these are questions that I would suggest that if you ever undertake any serious study of Scripture, that you approach with the same sort of basic questions that anybody, that any of us would approach it with. And we did this a few years back, if you were uh, here when we did the book of Philippians, we started the same way, asking just really basic questions. For instance, the first question that we're going to ask tonight is, like, what, what are we reading what words are we reading? The Bible is full of prayers and songs and history and, and, and gospels, good news messages. And what is this? Well, the text tells us what it is. It's what? A letter. Okay? It is, le- it is a letter written by a specific individual to a specific group of people. And, and it was written to address a specific situation. The same way you would write a letter today. Something came on your mind. You wanted to write it to a certain person, and you would write it. That's what this is. That's what we're reading. So who wrote it? Well, uh, the text tells us also, a guy named Paul. He calls himself an apostle. Apostle is just a word that means a messenger. It means a sent person. I want to pause here for just a minute because some of us might know exactly who this guy Paul is, but some of us might not. So I want to tell you a little bit of his story. Uh, he started off not named Paul. Anybody know what Paul's previous name was? Saul. Man, we're, we're hitting out of the park with, Bible stu- uh, with Sunday school today. Um, so Paul used to be named Saul. Saul was a Jewish guy. And he was a particular type of Jewish person. He was a Pharisee. And what this meant was that this was a group of, of Jewish uh, people, Jewish men, who were very passionate, I guess you might say, about the purity of their faith. They loved God. They loved God absolutely, but 
but they were really, really intense on keeping the purity of their faith sort of on the forefront of their minds. So around A.D. 33 or so, uh, or A.D. 30, the Pharisees start meeting this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus from, from up north, in, in, you know, and he comes in, and they start to have conflicts with the way he's expressing the Jewish faith because they don't agree with it. He's letting certain people in that they don't think should be in. He's tossing out rules that they think are really, really important. So if you read the Gospels, you see over and over again the Pharisees and Jesus constantly butting heads. Well, then things get worse for the Pharisees because Jesus of Nazareth eventually gets executed by the Roman government. End of story, right? Well, not so much. Because much to the disappointment and chagrin of the Pharisees, a bunch of people who used to hang out with Jesus a few days after he's killed start saying, you're not going to believe this, but Jesus has come back to life. He's been resurrected. And all of the hopes and dreams of our faith have been realized in this man and in this act. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the king that we've been waiting for. And the Pharisees and Saul do not read the tea leaves the same way at all. And they're like, you're wrong. He's a failed Messiah. He led people astray, and, and now by saying that you, he was the Messiah, guess what? People who are calling yourselves Christians, now you're leading God's people away, astray. And the Pharisees began to, to press in upon this new movement, this new sect of Judaism called Christianity, and they began to push hard on them and persecute them. And Saul was one of the guys that sort of was on the forefront of all that. And we're told in the scriptures that Saul presided over arrests of Christians just for being Christians because they were perverting the faith. We're told that he presided over the, the torture, the whipping, the beating of Christians because they were perverting the faith as he saw it. And we're told that he presided over the execution, particularly of a guy named Stephen, for leading people astray from the faith as he saw the faith should be lived out. And that's, that's Saul's story until something happens. And I'm just going to read straight from the book of Acts to kind of explain what happens to Saul's world. Because Saul was based in Jerusalem. That's where he, that's where he started off. But he would travel to other towns. And so he's on his way to Damascus to look for Christians, to look for Christians to arrest, to persecute, probably to execute as well. But then the text says this in Acts chapter 9. As, as he, as Saul, was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul instantly recognizes that he's kind of in the deep water here. A voice is speaking to him from somewhere that he can't see. He is above his pay grade. So he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up 
and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And in that instance, Saul's world changes entirely. He's never the same. He's blinded by the experience. We don't really know why. We, don't, we can't really explain it. But he loses his sight. He goes into the city as the voice tells him. He spends some time with the believers there in Damascus. And he's converted. So this guy that hated Jesus, this guy that hated Christians, comes back now as a follower of him. And what's more, not merely a follower, once his conversion is done, immediately as his conversion is done, he's given a commission. He's given a mission. He's given a purpose. And he's told, Saul, you're going to take the message of Jesus as the Messiah, as Jesus of the King of the world. You're going to take it to the world. You're not just going to take it to your Jewish brothers and sisters. You're going to take it to the rest of the Roman Empire. So he receives this and he changes his name from Saul to Paul. And that's his story. A mission to take the, the message of the resurrected Jesus to the entire ancient Mediterranean world. So that's who wrote this letter. Paul, an apostle, a sent one from God. Well, who is the letter to? We're told also in the text, it's written to this, these people called Galatians. Now, who are they? Who are they? Very simple. Saul, Paul, began traveling around the, the Mediterranean. These are his missionary journeys. He took three of them. The first one, he starts in Antioch, and he travels up into this area, which is kind of uh, modern Turkey. The second trip that he takes starts in Jerusalem, much longer, through Turkey, all the way up to Greece, and then back down to Jerusalem. And then the last one takes off from Jerusalem, travels largely, largely by boat here. This is like the nautical symbol for a shipwreck, I guess. I don't know, just squiggly lines. This is what, he, he has a shipwreck. He's, he's, he's wrecked, uh, puts into port at Malta, and eventually ends up at Ro in Rome, where we believe he is uh, executed sort of in the latter part of uh, 80s, 60s, uh, close to 70. Now, this is his first journey again. Galatia is both a regional designation. I'm just going to get a little bit historical geeky for a second. So Galatia is a, a regional designation of the Roman Empire and an ethnic designation. It's, it's right here. Okay. Now, this is just kind of interesting. It has really nothing to do with the story. But Galatia is essentially, it comes from the land of the Gauls. And if you're familiar with any sort of ancient history, the Gauls are normally associated with France, Central Europe. And furthermore, Gaul is related to the ancient word for Celt, Celt, Gaul. So the people that we associated with Scotland and Ireland, the Celts, actually uh, found their way all into this area. So all these little dots are, are places where Paul stops and plants churches. So when you say, who's the letter to? It's written to a church, a church of Galatians, a church in Galatia. Paul starts these churches and, and then he moves on because that's his mission. He's got to go. He's got to go. He's got to go. He doesn't stay anywhere for very long. Which leads us to the question, well, what's going on in the letter? Uh, in a broad sense, what's going on in the letter is that after Paul leaves, trouble starts. 
Trouble starts in every, almost every single one of Paul's churches, which I don't know what that says about his success as a church planner. But in almost every community Paul starts, after he leaves, there's some kind of trouble either from within or from without. So Paul writes letters back to these churches to try and help them deal with these, with these problems. And uh, for the next six to eight weeks or however long it's going to be, we're going to look at what's going on in this church. But I would suggest to you that what's going on can fit under, into one of two categories. The church at Galatia is having trouble with freedom and it's having trouble with unity. It's having trouble with how do we express our freedom in Christ? Like how free is free? And then the second thing is how do we eat together? Because every church was kind of bringing together people with different value systems. So how do we maintain unity in this church? I love Galatians because uh, I wanna, just wanna tell you, like it's got some of Paul's most forceful writing in it. Like, Paul is angry in Galatians and you just see his emotions, they bleed through the page. He's not happy with this church. He's not happy with what's going on in this church. And Paul is a really intelligent guy and he writes with a tremendous amount of sarcasm and a tremendous amount of even insults at times. And the reason I like it as sort of a Bible guy uh, is just because I love it when we see the, the people that God used in the history of our faith. That Paul isn't just a name that we know we actually get a feel for his personality in the book of Galatians. In a sense, like, that's what I came here to do tonight. That's what Galatians is. That's what is going on in the church. And, and in a sense, I could, I could say, let's stand, closing thought, go out praising God with our hands, and we would go. But as I began to prepare uh, and think about this message, really quickly, I just jumped, to, I had this thought in my head. And I, I just referred to it as the question behind the question. The first question being, you know, what's the framework for Galatians? But I thought there was another question beyond that. And it comes from conversations that I have with a lot of you. And it comes from my own life. And essentially the question behind the question is, what do I do with this book? What do I do with the Bible in my life? Because... This is not like the easiest book in the world to deal with, is it? There's crazy stuff in here. And yet, as a person of faith and as a person of, of the Christian faith, I want to tell you, this just isn't, isn't just a book. This is the book. This is our book. And somehow our life has to revolve around it. But if you're like me, you struggle with your relationship to this book because you open it and things like that you don't understand or things that, that challenge you or things that wreck you. And so a lot of us just put it away and hope, pretend that maybe it doesn't exist and pick up, let's face it, the Hunger Games. <laughs> but we have to deal with the Bible. And so what I want to spend the rest of our, our time talking about is maybe putting uh, an idea in your head of how you can deal with the Bible in a compassionate, intelligent, and I believe uh, engaging way. 
And I want to kind of just do that by telling you a little bit of how I've progressed with the Bible. This is my, one of my first Bibles. It probably actually is my first Bible. I'm, I'm really not a pack rat, but I do happen to have like these, all these random things around my house. I probably got this around 1976 or something. I don't know. It's a children's living Bible, and it, it's great. It has awesome color pictures. Uh, Jesus is not blue-eyed in this, which I thought is, is pretty all right. But uh, the pictures are funny. I, ha- I, put, I took a picture and I put it up here. This is uh, Jonah after he's spat out of the whale, right? So like he's kind of chilling out. And like I noticed two things like, one, he's, he's, he's like bigger than the whale. Like I'm like, how do you fit in that thing? And I don't know what the, what the whale's doing like up on the beach. He's kind of like waving with his tail. And then the other thing I noticed is that if you just spent three days in the belly of a, of a fish or a whale, like wouldn't you be covered with like all sorts of nasty like gook? But he's just chilling out, like getting some sun, you know, and that's, that's Jonah. That's one of the pictures of, uh, from, from this Bible. My, my relationship with this Bible, with my Bible early on, was I would just say one of superstition. All right, and this is what I mean by that. I had a nightstand by my bed. Uh, I, was, I had horrible habits as a child in that um, I snacked in bed as I read. You know, so I'm like, I got the chips happening. I'm reading books. And, and my Bible was always on my nightstand. So my nightstand would get littered with like Coke cans and, and uh, cracker wrappers and stuff and peanut butter. I, I did it all. Uh, but I had rules about my Bible that, uh, that were just freaky rules. I don't even know where they came from. So every night before I went to bed, I had to look and check, make sure the Bible always had to be face up on the nightstand. Couldn't be, couldn't be turned over. It had to be face up, and there couldn't be anything on it. So I looked, I'm like, make sure the crumbs were off it, you know, make sure there's no Coke cans. Right? I never read it. But it was always face up on my nightstand. Now, about... Uh, I don't know, when I was 19, I, I, I had a different Bible than, than this, and I decided I should start reading it. And I cracked it open to like somewhere in, you know, first or second Kings and was like, you know, King Lemuel then slaughtered, you know, 10,000 Amalekites. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm going to put it back on the nightstand and like, let's just leave it there. Because I was like so freaked out. What do I do with this? Well, eventually, you know, I, I started reading it and, uh, I moved to sort of this new phase of, of understanding the Bible. And it's a, it's, I want to rest here for a little while because I feel like it's a place that maybe a few of us are familiar with. And that is, I began to understand the Bible as a rule book, as an instruction manual. You know, people said, this book has everything you need to know about life in it. Um, I, I would question whether those people have actually read the Bible, but that's another story. Um, anybody remember the acronym for Bible, right? Basic Instructions. Before leaving earth, right? Uh, and that's the way it was portrayed to me and maybe to you. Maybe, maybe you're still there. And I got to thinking this week about instructions. And I, we bought a house a couple years ago. And when we bought it, we drove down to Orlando and went to Ikea, took a U-Haul, did it up like real big, man. We bought the, whole, brought the U-Haul back full of stuff. And I don't know if any of you guys ever buy stuff at Ikea, but like this is what, you know, it comes with instruction manuals. You put all the furniture together yourself, right? And uh, <clears throat> the instruction manuals all look this way. 
They have a funky name on it that you have no idea what this has to do with the actual thing you've bought. Berg's Bow. It's a bookshelf. Okay, let's just call it what it is. They always have a picture of the piece of furniture, right? This is what you're trying to make. This is what instruction manuals do. They show you this is the target. And then you open it up and you start looking in like, there's like 20 different languages in here. You find your language and then you start going. It's all pictures. You know, step one, step two, step three. This is the, you know, step four is the part where I get mad at my kids and tell them to go leave me alone because I can't get this thing built. Step five is the part where I figure out that I put this on upside down. I got to go back to step two and put it on right. Instruction manuals are really, really helpful. But I want to suggest to you that our Bible is not an instruction manual for a couple different reasons. One, my life, a lot more complicated than a bookshelf. Maybe your life is too. My life can't be summed up in, this is 26 steps. I can't build my life in 26 steps. And it's way more complicated than a bookshelf. And furthermore, uh, rule book, rules and instruction manuals um, are helpful for doing things. But what's not stated, but what exists in a rule book, is a very clear right and wrong. If you do not follow these rules, you will not build your Berg's bow. It will not look this way. There is right and wrong. And whenever you start talking about right and wrong, you start talking about the potential for misuse. And you start talking about taking this book and turning it into something that it's not designed to be, which is a method of control and manipulation and a way to hurt people. I found this uh, movie clip uh, from a book. Put a, a crew together. We'll oh, go in after him. It's not a book. It's a weapon. A weapon aimed right at the, the, the hearts and minds of the weak and the desperate. It will give us control of them. If we want to rule more than one small town, we have to have it. People will come from all over. They do exactly what I tell them if the words are from the book. He's talking about the Bible. It's a book of, uh, book, the movie's the book of Eli. This book is, is a weapon, he says, that's aimed at the hearts and the minds of the weak and the desperate. And people will come from all around and they will do what we tell them to do if they know the words come from the book. Have you ever heard the Bible used that way? Have you ever felt it used that way? Have you ever been sort of metaphorically beaten right upside the head with this Bible? Because Bibles are typically big and they will hurt if you get hit with them. This is not the way this book is meant to be used. And that is always a pitfall when you start talking about, I guess, simplifying something so much that you say, this is your instruction manual for life. It's not a weapon. And life is much more complicated. Now, 
If I was honest with you, I would tell you that there are times in my life where I wish it was an instruction manual. There are times in my life when I've woken up sort of uh, metaphorically in a place that I don't know how I got there. And my life has stopped resembling anything that I would recognize as what I wanted for my life. And I wish I could open up and find step one, God, to get me back to where I wanted to be. Step two, God, help me get back to what I thought my life was supposed to be. I want sometimes the instruction manual. I want it to be simple. We want step one, step two, step three. You know what God has given us? God gave us in the beginning. God gave us, in other words, once upon a time. We want the marching orders. We want the step one, step two, step three. God gave us a story. Part of me goes, really, God? I need something more from you right now. I really would have rather had the instruction manual. But what I want to suggest to you is that the reason God gave us a story is because his agenda is so much more subversive and radical than what we expect. Because when you have an instruction manual, you are just expected to do what it tells you to do. Don't think, just put the screw in the hole, twist it. Maybe you've lost your little Ikea tool, you got to go find it. But you get it, you put things where they're supposed to be, you use some wood glue. And don't think, just get it done. And it can almost be a passive type of interaction. And I want to suggest to you that the last thing God wants is passivity out of any of us. That God's agenda for using story is that he wants engagement and participation. And that's what story does. Even physiologically, people have studied what goes on in our brains when we identify a narrative. When we identify a once upon a time, something clicks in our brains and we sort of sit up and take notice to say, where's this going? How, how am I supposed to interact with this? And God's radical agenda for his people, for you, for me, is to participate and engage and not just be passive in this world that he's given us. You see, a lot of us start off with this question that centers around the Bible, and it centers around the place of the Bible in our life, and it's basically the question of authority. How am I supposed to give this Bible authority in my life? I want to suggest to you tonight, this is not the right question for you to ask. The question for you to ask is, how do I give God authority in my life? And what does God's authority look like? Not how do I submit to the Bible, but how do I submit to God through the scriptures? That's a very, very different thing. Because God's authority has a very, very unique, peculiar, particular arc to it. And I want to just kind of bounce uh, through the Old Testament and New Testament in a couple ways and show you. Now, the first time this became, it jumped out to me was, um, back in October, and I shared this with you guys when, when I came back from Guatemala. Uh, in Exodus 3, Moses encounters God in, the, in a burning bush. And God is telling Moses that he has heard the cry of his, of his people, his children that have been enslaved. 
And he says, I'm about to do something about it. And this is what he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. God says, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh. Moses, you must lead my people out of Egypt. And I remember talking when we came back from Guatemala just about how that was such a mind-blowing thing for me because I'm like, God, why wouldn't you just do that yourself? Because you got the miracle thing pretty well in hand. You could probably make this happen really, really easy. Why don't you just do it, God? You saw what was going on. But God's MO in the world is partnering with us. So when he sees his people being enslaved, he's like, Moses... I'm sending you. Could I do it? Yeah. But then you would miss out, Moses. And that's the way this thing is designed. Now, in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, Jesus is, um, has been resurrected and he's going back up into heaven. One of the last things he says to this, his disciples, we know it as the Great Commission, and he says this, I want you to notice the relationship between authority and participation. All right? Authority and participation, authority and engagement. Jesus tells his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And the last time I checked, that's pretty much a totality. All authority in heaven, all authority on earth. I don't know if there's any other authority to be left to be given, but I think Jesus has got that too. All authority in heaven on earth. Therefore, Jesus says, what does Jesus say? Therefore, go. Who goes? Who goes? Us. Who has the authority? Jesus. But who goes? Us. Go and make disciples of all the nations. So there's this crazy relationship between the authority that Jesus has in our participation, our engagement. He does it again in another sort of expression of it in Acts chapter 1. He's ascending to heaven for the last time. He's leaving his disciples in Jerusalem. They ask him, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And this is what Jesus says. He replied, the Father alone has the what? Authority. There's the word again, authority. He has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. But who will receive power? Who will receive power? The disciples will receive power. God has the authority. The disciples will receive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Who will be the witnesses? The disciples. God has the authority, but you're going to receive power. You're going to be the disciples. You'll be the witnesses telling people about him everywhere. So I would say it this way. When you talk about the authority of God and submitting to God, what you have to realize is that the authority of God always releases, empowers, and sends his people to do his work. If you are looking for the authority of God in this book 
and it's not being read or taught in a way that's not releasing you, empowering you, or sending you to do the work of God, I would challenge you that maybe you need to reread the Bible with that in mind. Because the authority of God releases, sends, empowers. It does not control, belittle, manipulate, or beat. And that is good news. Because I think it's time for us to get beyond the Bible being used as a weapon to control people and manipulate people. Because I feel a little bit too strongly about this book to have that happen, at least as much as I can help it. So this all makes, you know, maybe it makes sense to you. Maybe it sounds interesting to you, but how does it play out? Well, I can't read every part of scripture to you right now and show you how to wrestle with it. But I want to return and wrap up with this idea of, of God's story, of God telling a story, a once upon a time type of thing. What does that mean? I want to suggest that God's story has five acts to it. And this comes from a guy named N.T. Wright. I just love the way he unpacks this. That we are living in God's story. And God's story looks this way, that there's five acts. Act one is creation. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, let there be light. You know, God creates the earth, the heavens, all the animals, human, humanity. Then act two is the fall. Humanity makes a mistake. Creation gets broken in a fundamental way. And God uh, wrestles with what to do about it, I guess you might say. From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, things are kind of chaotic. There's a few stories going on. And then Genesis 12, God calls a guy named Abram. Abraham is also his name. And God sets in motion a, a plan of redemption to fix creation through a people. And that act is pretty much from Genesis 12 to the rest of the Old Testament. That God's people, his plan of redemption is moving forward. It stumbles sometimes, but it moves forward. And then Act 4 comes and Jesus comes on the scene in the Gospels and fulfills all the hopes of Israel. And then Act 5 begins in the book of Acts. But this is where things get interesting. Because Act 5 is still going on. If you were to think about this as a play, and, and I printed out at least, I printed out some of the script for Hamlet by Shakespeare. Hamlet has five acts. Think about it this way. If you started as an actor, I don't know if anybody of you spent any time in the theater, and you had a play that had four and a half acts written, and half an act, you, you knew that the play was supposed to end, but you didn't have a script. What would you have to do? You would have to improvise. Now, I say that, and some of us are like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we just make it up as we go along? Well, if you've, if you've been sort of a part of any Im improvisational act or or. Uh, endeavor, you know that there are rules to improvisation. And I want to suggest that dramatically, there are two rules of improvisation here that would apply. Is one, you don't throw out acts one through four. 
If you're, if you're reading Hamlet, you don't throw out the way Hamlet's character has been developed, the way Horatio's character has been developed. You don't throw out the plot and just make it up because it would make no sense. You have to read the script and know, well, this is the plot that I'm in the middle of. And I don't understand. I wish I had words that were given to me, but I'm not. But I understand what the story's been doing. So maybe I can contribute something. And relatedly, what you would not do is you wouldn't just keep repeating the lines from the first four acts, would you? Because that's, that's not taking the story anywhere. We are in the fifth act of God's story. The first four acts are all here. But we are being called to participate in this story. We can't just say, well, I'll just repeat Judges 18 because that sounds really good. That sounded really good in the third act. but We're in the fifth act now. We also can't say, well, I don't, I don't need this story. I don't need to know what's gone before. Because you have no idea what story you're in. You have no idea what story you're in. And we are called to know this. To not treat it as superstition. To not treat it as rules. But to know it as the story of our lives. And the story of redemption. And the story that we are all in. So I want to leave you, as the band comes back up, with two questions. The first question is just this. Do you know the story? What is your relationship to this Bible? Have you spent time with it? Not in a superstitious way and not an instruction book way, but in a way that says, I need to know what story I'm a part of. Do you do it regularly? Because I can tell you, there's, a, there's certain things that I am completely okay with in terms of being a mystery of our faith. And the mystery of our faith is, one of the mysteries of our faith is that this book will change you if you spend time with it. So the first question is, do you know the story? And the second question is just this, are you acting your part? Because some of us here in this room tonight, our, our, our feeling might be that, like, that's not my story. I don't have a part in it. I don't know if I want a part in it. But we believe that this story is moving towards a beautiful resolution. And God has called you into it. And it's a story of love. And it's a story of transformation. And it's a story of community and purpose. If you're in the story in a real practical way, do you come here week after week, and, and I hope I don't insult anybody, but do you come here week after week and like these chairs have almost the perfect imprint of your rear end on them because that's, that's the extent of your participation in the story? Because God's got more for you too. This story is written for us to have a part in. And it's much bigger than this book, but this book is key. So I'm going to pray 
Um, and, and then my last words to you are just like, man, we're going to go with this, with this Galatians thing. Dig in deep. Dig in deep. Read it with us. It's not the pastor's job to read your Bible. It's your job. Dig in deep and go with us. Would you guys pray with me? God, I thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of, in the face of my faithlessness, for the times that I've neglected your word, for the times that I have put your Bible away thinking I didn't need to know it, and yet uh, you keep pulling me back. God, I also repent as a, as a church leader for the ways that the Bible has been used to control, manipulate, and hurt. And God, I pray that if anybody is here tonight and they've experienced that, that they would find healing in the same pages that hurt them. And I pray that anybody who has used the Bible that way would find repentance and a change of mind. And God, I just pray that we would learn the part that you have for us. I pray that we would learn your story. I pray that we would engage with it. And I pray that we would see ourselves as part of your grand narrative that will one day find its resolution. And until that time, God, sustain us by your Holy Spirit. Amen.